From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Green Book was used in the mid-1900s as a guide for Black people to safely travel across the country. Now there's an effort in Colorado to bring it back online. When you go into a space, did you feel welcomed? Did you feel respected? Did you feel celebrated? We're finally going to be able to hold businesses accountable for their impact rather than their intent. Restrictions to open during the pandemic may be too much to overcome for an increasing number of restaurants. We'll find out what advocates are doing to keep them from closing. Then, Walmart changed its policy about locking up multicultural hair products. What's behind that decision? And the pandemic is bringing climate research to a halt in the Antarctic. For now, a Colorado researcher talks about why that's a big deal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. In the 1930s, a black postal worker named Victor Hugo Green published The Negro Motorist's Green Book. The segregation-era guide helped black people avoid violence and discrimination as they traveled by identifying safe and welcoming businesses and places. It stopped publication in 1967, a few years after the Civil Rights Act was passed. But entrenched racism continues to make black people feel unsafe in certain spaces. And some see a need for a new version of the Green Book. Parker McMullen Bushman and Crystal Egley are working together on this digital Green Book project. Hello to you both. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. Parker, you work at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster on community education and inclusion. You're also the founder of Eco Inclusive, which provides leadership training for building culturally diverse staff. And Crystal, you're a videographer for a public land management organization. So you both share a love for the outdoors and a passion for environmental issues. And you both have experiences of these spaces being unwelcoming to black people. Tell us more about that, Crystal, especially as a hunter. Yeah, I grew up pretty outdoorsy, so I love backpacking, fly fishing, camping, all of that stuff. But it wasn't until I started hunting a couple of years ago where I realized that the discomfort I was feeling was growing exponentially when I was walking around in these open spaces in public land with a firearm now. So that's kind of what um, jilted me out of the the lull I'd gotten into of feeling feeling comfortable with my discomfort, I'd, I'd gotten used to it, you know. And so now, though, I add this extra element, the hunting element to it, and the outdoors started feeling a lot scarier and more dangerous to me. And some of the best places to go hunting are oftentimes places I don't know if I can be fully comfortable feeling safe in. And so I just kind of was like, well, what if there was a place that listed safe places, safe, like help me know for sure before I planned my travel that I would be safe and welcomed in a town, a restaurant, um, a hotel where I was staying. And I realized the green book was that uh, historic, uh, historical green book. And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there was a modern version of that, you know, took it into the 21st century, you know, maybe a website or an app. And I realize there's a lot of places that have that on a smaller scale, but not on a on a larger scale. So that's kind of what sparked my interest in in quantifying these these safe spaces. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that feeling of unsafety. What does that stem from or what was that feeling? Yeah, it's pretty common. It's also pretty hard to explain. Oftentimes I'm I'm not believed 
so when I go into a store and I'm followed around and I, I tell people, my, my white peers, my white family members, you know, I felt really uncomfortable uh, in that store. There was a lot of people staring at me. Oftentimes that's, that's dismissed as, you know, if I had reported a different type of, of service gone wrong, such as getting bad food in a restaurant or poor service on trying to return an item, people believe that. But often with racial discomfort, there's that hesitation to believe, and and that's that that compounds over time, and it it really hurts, you know. And so we want to build a place, a website where we believe people, we believe these stories, and we can compile them so that everyone can see, you know, it wasn't just me that one time. And that is what we want to do for for people of marginalized identities. We want to be kind of like a Yelp for inclusivity, you know. I like that. There are these layers of discomfort, not only the discomfort, but also the discomfort of just not being believed. And Parker, you also have a story about feeling unsafe or unwelcome while you were traveling. Yeah, I'm an environmentalist that has worked in the field of conservation and outdoor recreation for 23 years. And I have oftentimes along my my path, my professional path, uh, find myself in spaces where I'm the only person of color. Um, And those feelings of, you know, being the odd one out, it can really also extend into your daily life. Um, We know that there is an issue with people uh, feeling safe in our outdoor spaces and in our parks. And that issue also extends into the daily lives of people with marginalized identities. And so some of those things can be like last summer, I was I was traveling cross country with my family and we were driving along a backcountry road and looking for a place to stop for my four-year-old to use the restroom. And when we, we pulled off at the first place that we stopped because, you know, that we saw because we didn't know what else was available. And when we got there, um, we're an interracial family. My husband took my four-year-old inside and I stayed outside with my other two kids. Um, he went inside. He said the reception was very chilly. The music stopped. It was like an old scene in a Western. People stopped talking. Everyone turned and stared at him. And the person at the counter um, wouldn't look at him and barely spoke to tell him where the restroom was. Meanwhile, I was outside trying to change the diaper of my uh toddler and I hear the ringing of a bell behind me and I turn around and there were three um, large uh, uh, white men standing there with their arms crossed uh, staring at me. They didn't speak to each other. They didn't speak to me. They just stared at me and my van and my husband came out moments later um, rushing up to me, speaking under his uh, breath, you know, get in the car, let's go, let's go. And so we definitely had a feeling of being unsafe and that we were not welcome in that establishment. And that's a feeling that extends, you know, uh, to lots of folks. And so we're really trying to help answer the questions for people. When you go into a space, did you feel welcomed? Did you feel respected? Did you feel celebrated? Because that's what um, inclusive spaces are all about. And, you know, our company, Inclusive Journeys, um, really wants to help identify safe spaces so that people can 
No, you know, they can look it up on an app or on a website to say, what spaces can I stop at here that are going to be safe and welcoming for for myself, for my family? Um, Because we've seen in the news lately, sometimes if you go into the wrong space, it can be deadly, right? People's lives are on the line. And as a Black woman, I never know whether someone's biased conscious or unconscious is going to affect the way that they serve me. Right. So like the original Green Book, this is a question of safety. Tell us about how you think that this resource could work. You know, we want to create a crowdsourced database of spaces so that people can go and look up and see, okay, not only what spaces are safe for me, but maybe what spaces have the things that I need. So we want to overlap things like our spaces ADA uh, compliant, our spaces welcoming to uh, trans folk, our spaces welcoming to other people in the LGBTQIA community. Um, we want this to have layers and to help serve lots of different people with lots of different uh, backgrounds. The other thing, though, is we want to extend um, resources to businesses because it's not always easy for a business to understand um, why. what about their space may not be welcoming. So this website, for the first time, will have data that businesses can see and will also have resources to help businesses self-audit for inclusion so they can improve and a range of free-to-paid resources such as referrals to diversity, equity, and inclusion resources and trainings. Um, With this website, we're finally going to be able to hold businesses accountable for their impact rather than their intent and provide them with resources that will be really helpful. So there's a lot of intersectionality and even some education. Um, The two of you have been talking about this idea for almost a year, but decided to start fundraising and getting the project going in the last few weeks. Why did you feel like right now is the right time, Crystal? We have been working on this for about six to eight months now, and it was really slow going. We knew that we would need a lot of resources, especially financially, to be able to to put this forward and to move this project forward. It's a huge huge project. And I actually started trying to learn how to code on my own. And it turns out I'm, I, I'm an artsy kid at heart. So, <laughs> um, that didn't work out. And so we realized that although we have these, these amazing ideas and visions and we know, know what we want and need, um, we couldn't figure out really how to, again, make people understand and believe us in this mission and and with our goals for this website. And then the recent events that have have started to shift the, the dialogue and the conversation. And now society as a whole is starting to hear these stories and believe them. And so we were finally able to to get to a point where we can tell people this idea and tell them about these experiences and how global they are to marginalized individuals. And people are listening right now and they're believing right now. And we are not going to let that go. We're going to create this, this, this resource that will last forever, not just for the people that it affects people of uh, black, brown, uh, indigenous people of LGBTQ community, um, not just for them, but so allies can also know 
where these businesses are, people are starting to be more aware of social issues and companies and organizations' positions before they spend their dollars. And the vision for this project is an app or some kind of digital space where people can share stories and these experiences you're talking about. But this was inspired by the original Green Book, like we've said. And Parker, you talked to your father about this project, and he remembers using the Green Book himself. I'd love for you to reflect on this history and what it means to you. My father uh, is about to turn 70, and so he remembers the time when this was really necessary, and it had felt like he, he thought, he had hoped that by this time we would be beyond that, right? But we are still finding a need to, to mark safe spaces, and that's a part of what we're doing. That's what's so powerful. We actually, our logo is a, um, a quilt code from the Underground Railroad, uh, the Flying Geese Square, which was used to signal um, the direction that flying geese were traveling as they migrated. And it was used to symbol places that slaves could stop to rest, to uh, get food, and that would be safe spaces. And here we are, you know, um, 400 years <laughs> of uh, Black people being in this land, and we still have to have a way to mark safe spaces. And so I feel like this is, is really important, is valuable for our community, and not just for the Black community, but for every um one that is of a marginalized identity that needs to find a, a voice. And how about for you, Crystal? What does the history of the Green Book and this history of needing to mark safe spaces mean to you? <sighs> it would be invaluable. <laughs> the concept Parker was talking about with our logo uh, is is literally my my dream come true. Actually, actually, yeah, it's my dream coming true right now. Um, so our idea is to take that logo and put it on doors of businesses, kind of like a Yelp or TripAdvisor, um, you know, sticker so that people can actually see like, okay, this bakery, if I go, go in there, they will make my cake, you know, um, things like that. If I had that <laughs> growing up, you know, if, if, if there were teachers who had this logo on their classroom door or friends who had it, that, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm about to cry. <laughs> I can't even explain how much easier it would be to navigate life knowing that there were allies out there who wanted to proudly show their allyship and be and say like you know uh we are here for you and you are are valued on the, the same level as everybody else when you enter into this space and and to be able to identify those spaces before you go into them i mean the the historical trauma uh, is compounded, not just not just in my lifetime, but over generations. And it is um, we're hoping that we can build a resource so that we can start to undo those layers of trauma and help people just be able to navigate everyday life. You know, just going to a store, going to a barbecue in a park, bird watching like it's literally just everyday life. We're trying to keep people safe and feel that wholesome, regular feeling of just being able to walk out your door, 
go to where you want to go and feel safe and welcome. These spaces could be marked not just digitally, but even physically with stickers like that. If someone were to say that there is no need for a digital green book in 2020, what would you say to them, Parker? (laughs) You know, I would just point to lots of incidences that we see almost on the daily. You know, back in January of this year, there was a gentleman who took a check to a bank, he, a black gentleman, um, and it was a settlement check. And the bank manager called the police on him because they thought it was um, a fake, a fake check. Um, the check was very real. And what was ironic about it is that the check was a settlement check for a workplace discrimination lawsuit that um the gentleman had had. And, you know, we see these incidences, but the gentleman at Starbucks that got the police called on them, or even George Floyd, who, you know, was called, the police were called on him for a counterfeit um, a bill that the manager of the business that he was at said he was a regular and he may not have even known that the bill was counterfeit, but it ended in his death. And so, to not to have this understanding that it is life or death and that these things that we just think of as, you know, oh, it was just that place or this one person is actually a bigger systemic issue that we need to be able to uh, recognize and to identify. And so with this um with this website, with the app, and with these stickers, we hope to encourage businesses to do better, and we hope to be able to hold businesses accountable, uh, not just for their intent, but also for their impact, because there are impacts daily on the lives of people who have marginalized identities. You have a GoFundMe campaign, and you're hearing from the community who do see a need for this. What are you hearing, Crystal? I was overwhelmed by the comments of people saying that it was it was absolutely needed. I know it's needed. Parker knows it's needed. Our friends know it's needed. But there was still this thing inside of me, which is probably conditioned by society, to tell me that my ideas aren't quite as good, quite as valued because of my identity, like these conditioned responses to even myself. So it was incredibly validating to to see everybody. I mean, I had classmates from second grade that I haven't, or, you know, that I haven't seen since elementary school. I had distant family members um, messaging me, telling me this is needed. This is this is wanted. There were strangers, um, people who are just starting their journeys into these discussions. And it was overwhelmingly validating to me uh, after a lifetime of being basically gaslit about how I feel in these spaces to have the the community, um, especially the people I haven't connected with in a long time, coming out and saying, this is an amazing idea. It's needed. I, we hear you. We support you. It was it was it was the, it's one of the first times in my life that I have felt so centered and so heard. And I just cannot thank people enough for supporting us in this. In the introduction to the Green Book, it reads, 
there will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. Would you like to one day see your digital version go away, Parker? Yeah, you know, I I think that I want to be at a place in society where this is not needed and where we can know that all places are, are safe spaces for everyone. That's our goal and that's our vision. Um, but until then, you know, I think that this place will be an important site and something that will provide support uh, to the community. Um, and if people want to learn more about it, they can visit us at inclusivejourneys.com. And they can also go there to find the GoFundMe link if they would like to support this important work. And I'd like to add to that something I actually learned in one of Parker's trainings that I took before we, we became partners in our in our work, which is that this work, uh, hopefully we do see the day when we do feel included and welcomed and celebrated in these state spaces. But when that day comes, I actually don't, don't think we can relax. I mean, a lot of people are reacting to current events as though uh, we're trying to fix a, um, you know, a root canal. You know, we're going to go in and have surgery. And this is an analogy that, that Parker shared um, don't want to take her idea. But, um, so instead of a root canal, we have to think of this work more as dental hygiene. It's something we have to do every day, keep working on it, uh, keep flossing. I hate flossing, but uh, you know, you got to keep doing the work forever and ever. And so I hope there is a day that um, we do feel feel comfortable, but to to maintain that Everybody, self-included, Parker, me, everybody out there, allies, um, people in all all spectrums of their their journeys right now, we need to keep working actively to to counter the discrimination that is systemic in our society. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Parker McMullen Bushman and Crystal Egley are working together on a digital version of the Green Book for 2020. When we come back, pandemic restrictions continue to challenge restaurants in the state. Why the next three months could be so important. I'm Avery Lill. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. The majority of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members, which means your donation of any amount helps keep CPR strong. It also means because of your generosity, the news and music heard on Colorado Public Radio remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. And right now is a great time to give, because thanks to a $100,000 matching grant from an anonymous donor, your donation will be doubled dollar for dollar. It's easy at CPR.org. 
It's been 98 days since Governor Polis first closed restaurants across Colorado for all dine-in services. About three and a half weeks ago, the state eased restrictions, allowing restaurants to operate at either 50 percent dine-in capacity or 50 persons maximum, whichever is less, as long as social distancing is maintained. And late last week, the state issued its latest guidelines. Bars will be allowed to reopen at 25 percent capacity or 50 person maximum, and some restaurants will be permitted to serve up to 100 customers at a time. Sonia Riggs is president of the Colorado Restaurant Association. She's joining us to provide a 100-day report card on Colorado's restaurant industry, which has been hit especially hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. Sonia, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Sonia, the Colorado Restaurant Association conducts regular surveys of its members. The most recent one showed big fears remain. We'll talk about those fears in a moment. But first, I understand that you believe a lot of restaurants could close permanently in three months because of current restrictions. How many restaurants are we talking about? Well, uh, we're actually hearing, based on our recent survey, that um, 56% of restaurants are saying under current capacity limits, they'll consider closing permanently in, in less than three months. So it's a scary number. And just for clarity, these estimates are based on that survey. How many restaurants are included in the survey and how representative of it is it of restaurants in the state? So we got about 250 responses from all over the state. So I think it's a, it's a fairly good sample size. But, you know, in addition to the numbers that we're getting, we're also speaking to restaurants on a daily basis, hearing how difficult this is for them and how they really are struggling to survive. And one of the biggest fears you found among restaurants is that they're having to turn away guests. Talk about that demand versus capacity. Yeah, actually, 66% of restaurants that we talked to um, that said that they've reopened and they do have customer demand for more capacity, they said they're either turning people away or forcing them to wait. And 32% of restaurants are turning away more than 50% of their normal capacity. So that's, um, you know, shows that there's demand out there. And restaurants, obviously, they need customers to ensure survival. That's a given. But it seems so that restaurants also have to thread a fine needle, pack in as many people as is allowed and considered safe, and also convince customers that the place isn't so packed that it poses a risk. How close are restaurants to balancing those competing interests? Well, you know, the good news is restaurants have always been prepared to um, to, to keep health and safety at top of mind. So they've been, they've been very diligently trained and are required by law to, to make sure that they practice um, very strict food safety um, techniques and the way that they serve and handle food. So, so this new, now, now what they're doing under, under the COVID recovery um, is they've just stepped that up even more. So, you know, not only do restaurants want to make sure that their, their own employees are safe, they want to make sure that their customers feel safe um, and also are safe. So, uh, you know, you, you've seen them add um, uh, signs on their front doors asking people to wear masks. You've seen them have hand sanitizer around. They're doing m- much more frequent cleaning um, and they're logging that cleaning. They're doing daily wellness checks. So, um, you know, they're really doing everything that they can to make sure that their guests are feeling safe when they come in into the facility. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm encouraged also in our recent survey, they asked, uh, we, we asked them how, how their customers are doing at complying. And 88% of restaurants um, that are open for dine-in service said their customers are following social distancing guidelines. And 72% say their customers are wearing face masks. So that was certainly a relief to hear that, that people are mostly being compliant. There's this added element that customers also have to be concerned about food safety as well. 
Your survey says that 10% of restaurants won't or can't reopen for in-person dining under current capacity limits. But for some restaurants, keeping dining rooms closed is less about business survival and more about customer and employee safety. Let's hear from Julie Pigano. She owns an iconic Italian sandwich shop in Pueblo called Pass Key. Out of um, respect and health and safety for my employees as well as customers, we decided to wait a little bit longer to reopen the dining room. And um, we are getting ready to reopen that Monday after the 4th of July. I don't think I'm missing out on revenue by not opening the dining room. I think it has slowed down because other restaurants have been able to to open that weren't open during the pandemic. Sonia, are you hearing from owners like Julie who are putting that kind of emphasis on public health? Well, you know, let me say this. Every owner, I think, is putting emphasis on public health. It's not just those that are choosing to stay closed. So people may choose to stay closed for whatever reason, whether it's it, whether it's they just don't feel comfortable opening up, and that's certainly up to them. Um, but, but others I've talked to say they just can't financially make it work, as you had mentioned. And then there are others that say, sure, we're going to stay open or, or, or decide to open up that had previously been closed, but it may be limited to, to carry out or delivery service. And then others who are willing to open their dining rooms, I will say I have not heard from one restaurateur who is not being extremely diligent about trying to make sure that their restaurant is safe. They are worried not only about their customers, but their, but their employees. They want to make sure that it's a safe, comfortable dining experience. Um, let me just say, I've been to several restaurants over the last couple of weeks, and I've felt extremely safe. In fact, yesterday I went out to, to lunch with my mother, and we were the only ones sitting outdoors on a patio. Um, it was a really pleasant experience. Everybody had their masks on. The, the employees were wearing gloves. I, I just felt extremely comfortable. Let's talk about those outdoor spaces. The Colorado Restaurant Association and state and local governments have been working together to minimize negative impacts on restaurants. And those measures include things like those outdoor seating that you talked about, street clothes, Closures are underway across the state. Um, And let's hear from Ashley Kilroy. She's the executive director of the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses. That's the agency helping Denver's restaurants navigate the multi-agency bureaucracy required for them to get approval for outdoor seating expansion. We built this in less than two weeks, and it has already resulted in over 100 approvals in four weeks. And we usually get about 100 applications in an entire year. So we've done you know, what we'd normally do in one year, we've done in four weeks. We've gotten it down to where we are turning these around on average in seven days. And some of them we've turned around as quickly as within 48 hours. Ashley Kilroy is very proud of the work that she has done. Sonia, measures like expanding outdoor seating were endorsed by your organization as survival mechanisms. But your survey says 79 percent of restaurants are operating below 49 percent capacity even when including outdoor seating. Given these stark results, are the outdoor seating measures working? Are they enough? Well, I mean, nothing really is going to be enough until restaurants are back up to at least 75% capacity. When we talk to restaurants, they say that's the magic number that they need to be able to, to continue 
in a in the in a medium term um, amount of time. So for the long term, you know, restaurants really need to be back at 100%. That is what they base their business models on. So any limit in capacity is certainly going to be difficult for them. I think the fact that that cities all around the state are being open to allowing restaurants to expand their patios into non-traditional spaces like parking lots, like sidewalks and and even streets is at least one more way not only to allow restaurants an, a, a chance for a longer term survival um, but it but it also may make their customers feel a lot more comfortable we're hearing from the health departments that eating outdoors may be a, a safer way to to dine and if the measures to date aren't working or can't ensure survivability what other tools are available short of allowing full reopening well we really appreciate that um, the legislature just passed a bill for the next year to allow the continuation of alcohol uh, to go and delivery um, under the current executive order, as long as um, the state of emergency is still in place, the governor is allowing alcohol to go uh, sales and, and for delivery with no limits. Once that goes away, uh, this new bill that, that just passed, and we're waiting for the governor to sign it, uh, but we believe that he he will let that go through. Um, that that that'll at least give restaurants a little bit more of an opportunity. It is setting some limits in place, but it'll give them an opportunity. Could, to continue those additional sales that they didn't have um, otherwise in the past. Um, In addition to that, they're also continuing to be able to sell provisions, which a number of restaurants have. Remember, there's still that high-risk population that uh, the governor's office is saying, please continue to stay home. Uh, for those older adults or people with underlying health conditions, so this is uh, this uh, to go and delivery for um, from restaurants is really a, a, a safe alternative. We believe actually um, could be safer than than going to a grocery store. When we talk to the the state health department, they've actually said, in fact, because of the less the, the lower amount of contact that you have in restaurants, that may be a great um, alternative for that high risk population. And you mentioned to go alcohol. Um, several communities, including Inglewood, have gone a step further to allow open consumption of alcoholic beverages in designated public areas. Bar owners in Inglewood's open consumption zone are applauding that move. The short-term impact is also great, too, because we're at limited capacity seating and other places are, too, and some people are struggling to find how to still serve customers and be safe. Especially with such a bold move, it is really drawing people from outside the neighborhood to come to come basically walk around with a cocktail and be like, wow, this is I can be responsible and drink and and have a good time. Measures like this really help. So when we did apply for the expansion, um, we went through the city first, and then they told us we needed to go through the state, and I was very worried that it was going to be a slow process. And I had all my ducks in a row from the city, sent it all, showed them the receipt and everything, and they approved it within 20 minutes. I was floored, really. (laughs) So, yeah, it it was a huge relief. That was Phil Zerke, the owner of Zerke of the the owner of Inglewood Grand, and Tiffany Fixter, one of the owners of Brewability, a bar and brewery respectively in Inglewood. Sonia, does the Restaurant Association support what's happening in Inglewood and other cities loosening rules around alcohol sales just briefly? Sure. I mean it's this is what's called a common consumption area. So you need several 
um, businesses in a, in a restricted area uh, to work together to allow for that. And so what that means, just to clarify for your listeners, is that when somebody purchases alcohol within a restaurant or a bar, they can remove it and take it to a common area where they can walk around and consume it. What they can't do is take alcohol and bring it onto a liquor license premise. So they can't walk into a restaurant with with um, or a bar with alcohol they've purchased somewhere else. That's that's still not allowed. But, you know, any any um, any ease of restrictions, I think, is is and I say within limits, because, you know, we we never condone, um, you know, drinking and driving. We don't condone any illegal activity, obviously um, don't con- condone serving people under the age of 21. Um, but this really does give, uh, you know, additional alternatives to folks to to really enjoy um, you know, enjoy food and beverage from their favorite restaurant or bar and, and be able to enjoy it in a way that they really feel safe. So I, I certainly applaud um, cities for looking into to trying to find that flexibility where they can. Sonia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate you covering restaurants. Sonia Riggs is president and CEO of the Colorado Restaurant Association. When Lauren Epps, who is black, was shopping for a scarf for her hair in Walmart in Denver's Montbello neighborhood, she says all the multicultural hair products were locked behind glass. She posted a video on Instagram. If I want Suave or Tresemme or Pantene, it's out. But apparently the multicultural hair care is all locked behind the glass. CBS 4's Tori Mason reported Epps' story, and Walmart responded. Tori, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you describe what the hair care aisle looked like at the Montbello Walmart earlier this month? So, I mean, like Lauren was describing, um, many of the products for finer hair, like the Tresemme, the Pantene, they're on the right side of the aisle. And in this particular Walmart in the Montbello neighborhood, the demographic that would typically shop there is Almost the entire the entire other half of the aisle was multicultural hair care products, and they were all behind glass. Not just individual products that might have been shoplifted more, the entire section. So I could absolutely understand where Lauren was coming from. And Walmart initially said this was to prevent people from stealing the highest theft items. I've said it was discriminatory. Did her story surprise you? It did. And, you know, the initial response I got from Walmart was the same response every reporter's gotten because I am not the first person to report on this issue. And it was basically that, you know, Walmart doesn't tolerate discrimination. They're sensitive to the issue. And some items are subject to additional security, you know, like expensive razors, electronics. But I've never seen the whole entire multicultural section locked up. That's, that is absolutely implicit bias. And part of what Epps reacted to as well was it wasn't just that the products were behind glass or even smaller glass um, containers to lock the products in after somebody had taken them out to take them to the cash register. Is that right? Right. And it's it's humiliating because it almost feels like Walmart has decided who the criminals are as soon as you go in there. And um, it's rare that I can relate to something so deeply that I report on. And as journalists, it's never supposed to be personal, but it's no secret that I'm black and that I shop in that section, too. And it's really not a good feeling to see all of the items made specifically for you behind glass. And like you said, this has been an issue long before now. In 2018, Essie Grundy, who is black, filed a, filed a federal lawsuit against Walmart, saying that she felt shamed and humiliated that Walmart locked hair and body products designed for black people. Walmart said at the time that it did not have a specific category for these products and it didn't discriminate. The case was dismissed. But Walmart responded to your story. What did it say? 
Right. It's incredible. You know, someone took Walmart to court over this issue and nothing came out of it. Then I put a 90 second story on TV and two days later, Walmart says, "Okay, we'll stop. Um, I certainly didn't expect it. We hope that change comes from our stories. But I have to say that this is absolutely about timing. And we had actually um, we had shot that story about 10 days before it even aired when um, the protests were taking over the news and really when they were riots at the time. And I didn't want Lauren's story to get lumped in and lost in all of that nonsense at the time. So it's absolutely about timing. And by that, I mean, you know, no company wants to deal with the potential fallout that would come from them not responding to these, basically a customer's plea for equality. You know, every day there's a new boycott someplace because they aren't supportive of Black Lives Matter or similar. And Walmart didn't waste any time, you know, hopping on this, this trend of almost being woke for companies. And in that statement, Walmart said the practice was in place in 12 stores around the U.S. You talked to Lauren Epps after Walmart announced that it would stop locking up multicultural hair products, and she went back to the Walmart in Montbello. I actually bumped into another black woman who said that she was thrilled everything was out of the case. I think it is all about timing um, because, you know, people, like I said, people have gone to court. People have tried to fight. This has been ongoing. And since then, other retailers have followed suit, right? Yeah, you know, um, Walgreens and CVS announced, um, I think the following day, that they would discontinue locking up their products as well. Um, I've never, I haven't seen that practice in many of those drugstores, but I'm, I'm appreciative that they're also following suit. It's just a little frustrating that it took so long. Tori, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Thank you for having me. Tori Mason of CBS4 reported that a Walmart in Montbello locked multicultural hair products behind glass. After the report, Walmart discontinued the practice in stores nationwide. When we come back, how the pandemic is reaching all the way to Antarctica. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's classical venues will be quieter this summer, but Tuesday night, CPR Classical brings you a special live broadcast-only performance in collaboration with KCME. Musicians have traveled here from coast to coast, but there will be no audience at Packard Hall for this socially distanced chamber music concert of Mozart and more. From the Colorado College Summer Music Festival in Colorado Springs, one of the state's premier summer music festivals. Ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical, Tuesday night at 8. Climate change research in some parts of the world has become a lot more complicated because of the pandemic. The virus had halted most field research in the Arctic this summer to the north, and to the south, most research has been called off for this fall in Antarctica. Michael Gusev oversees the McMurdo Dry Valley's long-term ecological research project. He is the professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I understand you research your research site is in a polar desert. It's in a part of the world that most of us will never travel to. In a typical research season, what do you see there? Can you describe what it looks like? Yeah, it's a wonderful place that has some stark beauty to it, um, which is to say that when you fly by helicopter from the main station in McMurdo to get across the sound to get into the dry valleys, it's wide open, um, ice-free region. It, it, it's the largest ice-free region in Antarctica. It has exposed soils and um, rocky outcrops. And uh, when it's warm enough and there's enough sunlight, we get meltwater coming off of our glaciers that form streams. So we have streams, lakes, 
ice-covered lakes and uh, exposed soils in this part of the continent. And there's one river in particular that you do a lot of research with, right? That's right. Um, the Onyx River is in Wright Valley, and uh, research was started there back in the late 1960s by our colleagues in the uh, New Zealand Antarctic Program. Um, we took over uh, gauging that, that river um, in the 1990s, and um, we've been gauging it ever since. So it has an over 50-year flow record for it, and um, we've been studying the biology there as well. And that longitudinal data is really helpful, I imagine, for being able to study the long-term effects of things. The National Science Foundation made the decision earlier this month to not allow the roughly 30 researchers who travel every year to the continent to go to your field site. What's the impact? Well, we're still trying to sort that out. Um, in part, the impact is going to be, um, we expect, not being able to measure biological processes as they're occurring. So we're thinking about things like primary productivity. So um, plants that are in, for example, plankton in the, um, um, the lake water columns actually you know, going through photosynthesis. And that's an important rate step for carbon, carbon cycling and, and oxygen cycling in these systems and so forth. Um, and so in part, we're going to miss out on that. Um, but I think in, in, in part, we're also going to miss out on some of the measurements that we think are kind of done robotically. That is, we put a lot of data loggers out there, and um, some of those data loggers are going to fill up. Their memory is going to fill up. Or right now, we have some that are not um, actually uh, um, uh, sending their data through our satellite modems, which is unfortunate. So we're hoping that we can find a way to get someone out there to be able to fix a few of these things on the ground. But um, we may have a very a much smaller um, data stream than we usually do. And is there one data point that you're really going to miss in particular? Well, I think beyond the Onyx River, um, which is really such an impressive record, it's going to be unfortunate to have this gap for this coming austral summer season. Um, I think the other thing I would say is is um, the biology of the lakes. Um, this is a record that you really have to go out and measure um, directly. And, um, you know, that's something our record goes back to the mid uh uh, 1980s. And so it'd be really nice to keep that going. Um, but we have a gap um, coming up. And I think we, we're trying to find creative ways to figure out what's happened in that gap. So maybe we're going to become uh, a bit forensic with our science. And what about permafrost melt? How important is that one year of gap of information going to affect the studies for climate change and permafrost melt? So we've seen a fair bit of permafrost degradation, particularly uh, around our streams. And these are places where the mechanical action of moving water can erode some of the banks, and then the banks have less material to uh, insulate the, the frozen ground underneath. And then you get this feedback system where you can uh, degrade the, the uh, margins of the stream. Um, and you know, Murphy's Law would have it that um, we're likely to see, you know, a big melt year or, or a lot of permafrost degradation going on simply because we're not there. We're hoping that doesn't happen, but um, a lot of these uh, observations, we rely on being on the ground and seeing effects perhaps downstream or downslope or directly with our eyes. And um, without that, we're going to have to rely on um, satellite uh, imagery as much as we can and um, try to uh, put back the pieces if, if we are able to come across those locations next year. So tell me more about that satellite imagery because you're having to get creative in how you get, gather data. Do you get to kind of spy on your research down south with satellites? And if you can do that, what do you want to look at? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we've had the ability for the past uh, about 10 years or so to get um, high resolution uh, uh, imagery. And so this is on the order of about 60 centimeters in one pixel. And so um, we can we can look very carefully at what's happening across the landscape. But in some cases, it's hard to see exactly how things have shifted. So for example, we get, we get some dustings of snow, we get um, snow patches that occur uh, through the winter, and trying to sort of figure out how things have changed in a 3D way by looking at them in 2D can be a little bit challenging. So we'll do our best. Um, when clouds get in the way, of course, we can't see through them um, with the, the optical imagery that we have. And so, um, you know, I think we can keep our eyes on a few places and say, you know, this looks a little bit odd. Um, and that might be a target that we um, want to get back to as high priority the following year. And there will be a limited staff in Antarctica working out of another site. Have you thought about what someone who is less highly trained might be able to do for your team or what would you have them do? Well, we've come up with a list of, of um, a number of tasks. If anybody was able to get out to our field site, we could train them enough to be able to perhaps start up our stream gauges or um, hopefully fix uh, our satellite modem, those kinds of things. Um, we're waiting to find out whether there are gonna, there's going to be any helicopter support and then whether we can pass along that information to the right people um, in hopes that they could try to schedule that sometime through the season. So um, there's, a, there's quite a bit we can do. We have, we have wonderful manuals for everything we do, and hopefully folks can follow instructions. But um, yeah, we're hoping for the best. And a big part of climate change research is identifying trends and patterns over time. Your research site is one of 28 long-term sites funded by the National Science Foundation across the world. I wonder if you've spoken with your colleagues who run other stations. Is there a sense of mourning about how COVID-19 has impacted climate research? And will climate science be negatively impacted by coronavirus from your perspective? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a, a little bit we've looked at the pluses and the minuses. So um, I think a, a lot of people, we, you know, originally we were all focused on how challenging it is that we're not going to be able to get to our field sites. And when we all came together, we have a, a um, the lead scientists for each one of these projects, we have a meeting annually in the spring. One of the things that we turned to was starting to think about what is uh, the opportunity to study things across our sites um, that is going to be, you know, perhaps common because there's less uh, CO2 emissions, for example, with um, everybody staying inside. So I think those studies are still being generated at the moment, but um, that might be the silver lining to this. Um, but otherwise, I, I think we're all trying to scramble to find ways to, to fill in our gaps. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. CU Boulder Professor Michael Gusev oversees the McMurdo Dry Valley's research project in Antarctica. Work there has been called off for now because of the pandemic. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.